0: listeners thanks for tuning into another episode of our Two Scientists podcast and our guest today is Claire Blackett-Taylor. How are you doing Claire?
1: I'm really good thank you.
0: Thank you so much for coming out to speak to us during your incredibly short trip to Tampa. It's (laughs) a very (laughs) whirlwind trip. So we ask our speakers to give everybody an introduction to who they are, what they trained at and what they're doing currently.
1: Okay um, well as I said my name is Claire Blackett-Taylor. I'm from Ireland originally, but now living in Norway. I've been there for three years. It's maybe easier to say what I currently work as, and then Looks describe back. how I got there. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, I'm currently working as a human factors analyst and human reliability analyst with the Halden reactor project, which is based in Norway. It's uh, we work primarily in the nuclear industry, but also we do some work in petroleum, aviation, things like that as well. I've been working in the nuclear industry for about about eight years now as a human factors engineer, a human factors analyst. But my background is completely non-nuclear and non-human factors. Um, I originally my undergraduate was in English literature and sociology. <laughs> wow. Uh, After I finished university, I went and worked as a waitress in Canada for two years. As you do. (laughs) Um, Then I I went back to Ireland and I went, um, I kind of got into computers through a job that I was working in. I was doing tech support for America online. I went back to university and did a higher diploma in computer science for one year. And then ended up taking a PhD in Accident Investigation Methods with the Computer Science Department. I had never heard of Human Factors by the time I finished my PhD, but I was lucky enough to get a job in the UK with a Human Factors Consultancy and got into the field that way. Um, And after a couple of years, I took a job with a company that just did a lot of nuclear stuff. So I gradually got into working in the nuclear industry. I think you may
0: win the prize for the most convoluted trip to their current job.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, I mean, I was pretty much failing physics in high school, (laughs) so it was really ironic for me that I ended up working in the nuclear industry. But so far, nobody has noticed that part. (laughs) It's probably for the best. Yeah.
0: Um, So, specifically, you... You just said you work on the the Halden Reactor. As I understand, this is a facility that's built specifically for research, is that right? Yeah,
1: that's right. So in Norway, they don't have any civil nuclear. Uh, We have two small research reactors, one in Halden, which is in the southeast of the country where I live, and one uh, just outside of Oslo. And the Halden Reactor Project, it's one of the longest-running projects in the world. It's been going since about 1958, I think. Um, And it's funded by countries and organizations all around the world, um, nuclear organizations, who want testing done on maybe new types of fuel, new types of material that can go in the reactor. What would happen if we, you know, suddenly heat the reactor up? How would that affect the fuel? And then based on that, they can make better decisions about new fuel designs and so on. The reason that they can't do these kinds of experiments in the civil reactors is because they have to shut down the reactor so often Mm -hmm. and so on, it just wouldn't be profitable. And so at Halden and in Oslo, we can do all of this kind of research for them. Um, They specify what they want, we do the research, we give them the results and they can use that in their own sort of development and design going forward. I actually don't work on the reactor side of things. Uh, We also, in Halden, we have a full scope control room simulator. Um, And that's where I work, so looking more at the operations side of things. We design new um, uh, operator interfaces, for example, or maybe new procedure types, electronic procedures, these kinds of things. Then we will get operating crews from plants in the US, in Sweden and in Finland. They will come and work with us for a week and we can basically run scenarios and do experiments on them Uh to see how they um, use these different interfaces how they're you know how it affects human performance what kind of errors they might make and then again the member organizations can then use that information to make changes at their own plants okay i can't help but think homer simpson when you say i know (laughs) everybody does (laughs) but uh, i haven't yet met a homer simpson in the nuclear industry so that's why i think maybe it's me (laughs) maybe i'm the homer
0: (laughs) but that's okay you're not pushing the buttons you do like donuts (laughs) (laughs) okay so um i think nuclear power in general gets a bum rap so what is the reality behind what happens when you have i don't want to call it a nuclear disaster because that really sounds misleading and that's how the news likes to portray it but when you have uh, incidents such as chernobyl or fukushima what is actually happening there and how um can you describe what the, the realistic fallout of these things is compared to what we read about in the
1: news? Yeah, I mean, with um, Chernobyl, you know, I was a bit too young when it happened to sort of really understand. And then, I mean, as I said, I never really intended to work in the nuclear industry. I sort of ended up by accident, pardon the pun, uh, in, the, in that industry. But when I started working, there was still a lot of discussion of Chernobyl just almost on a a weekly basis, is that you will hear the word Chernobyl come up over and over again, either in terms of lessons learned, like what have we learned since Chernobyl happened, that we can try to use that information to prevent a similar accident in the future. Norway, actually the Halden Reactor Project, they are working a lot with um, the Russian authorities to try to deal with Chernobyl. So at the moment, the reactor that blew up is encased in this big sarcophagus to Mm -hmm. try and and keep the radiation uh, controlled. But now they really need to start taking that apart and, and dealing with what's left inside there. And so Halden has been working quite closely with Russia to try and figure out a way to do this safely. And how can we take out the melted fuel that's still in there and still giving off radiation and how can we dispose of it in a safe manner? I have to say, I'm I'm not involved in that project at all, so I only hear little bits every now and then. But um, I was working in the nuclear industry when the Fukushima accident happened, and that had a huge impact on our daily work because all of a sudden we were thinking, well, even if we didn't have an accident of that magnitude in the UK, for example, because you just geologically you're just not going to get an earthquake of that Mm -hmm. magnitude and therefore a tsunami we still had to re-evaluate all of our safety arguments for how the plants were set up. Normally the safety cases that we would use to get a license to operate is based on a 1 in 10,000 year storm. So you think what's the worst storm that could happen in 10,000 years and then you build your safety case around that and all of a sudden we had to think well is that enough and should we be looking at larger scale accidents and also accidents that cover multiple conditions mm-hmm. so instead of just looking at uh, massive flooding for example we had to look at what if you had massive flooding plus really high winds plus uh, loss of power um, plus some kind of a minor scale uh, earthquake or something like that so you can't get equipment to the plant uh-huh. then what would we do yeah yeah in the Human Factors team, we started looking outside of the nuclear industry. So we were we went to a centre that was set up in Devon uh, by firefighters, and this was in response to the 9-11, 9/11 event, um, where they were suddenly looking at, you know, if we had a terrorist attack of that magnitude in the UK, um, how would we respond? So again, you know, how would we physically get equipment to the site if buildings have collapsed, how would we get people out? Yep. They would train with these 48 hour training scenarios um, and they had all this incredible equipment. And so we went down and we talked to them. So in the years since nine eleven, and you guys are training on this, what have you learned? What works? What doesn't work? What are the issues that you still think you're going to face? And then we would try to translate that to what we know about nuclear operations. A part of the the fallout from it was um, just thinking in terms of human reaction so at Fukushima when that event happened there was the Fukushima 50 mm-hmm. which was actually about 100 people but they were people who stayed at the plant and stayed working to try and make it safe even though a lot of them had lost contact with their families and they didn't know yeah. whether their families were still alive or how they, you know, how they were doing where they were or anything and a part of that you can put down to the Japanese societal culture. It's a very kind of self-sacrificing and so on. And we thought, but would you get the same culture in the UK? Mm-hmm. Can we try to predict whether, you know, staff would stay at the plant? And my initial instinct was that, no. Mm-hmm. Know, I thought if it was me, I think I would be, I would want to go and and make sure my family is okay but then I wasn't working at the actual plants. I was in the engineering office. And yep. when I talked to people who worked at the plants, they would say, no, we've, we've invested our whole careers in this plant. We know the plant. And we also know that the best way to keep our family safe is to make the plant safe. And I just thought that was incredible. And it was so unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do believe that you know, the majority of them would actually live up to that promise. But it really it changed how we would do our human factors assessments then because all of a sudden we had to factor in this very kind of intangible idea of sacrifice and kind of for the greater good yeah. culture and we had to try and make sense of that and just think so in a major accident scenario how do we account for that mm-hmm. you know, how do you put a number on that to see yeah. how it affects the error probability for example it's a very very difficult thing to do Yeah, and so we're still trying to figure out with the work that I do at Halden the research that I do there we're still trying to figure out how do we, how can we systematically and robustly analyse that kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, so that it makes sense for our member countries and that they can actually take credit for it in their analysis. Um, yeah. We still don't really have an answer on that, so we're still working on it.
0: Yeah, it's mm-hmm. an incredible thought because I think for most academics, most of what we do is so intangible, yeah. and we're never going to end up in those kinds of extreme situations. Mm. I have to admit, I was one of the people who always thought, oh, nuclear, nuclear power plants, that doesn't sound very safe to me. doesn't sound like a yeah. good idea. But you have so many countries for whom it's a major source of their energy, like France, for example, is yes. that right? yeah. And yet no one seems to consider that they have happily, safely been running those for how long? And then as soon as... It's much like every major disaster whereby people start to freak out because one thing goes wrong. And now Fukushima is the poster child for yes. um, uh, a nuclear incident. Mm. So how do you go about trying to explain to people that nuclear power is safe and it's a reliable and potentially necessary source of power for us given
1: our current situation with climate change? Yeah, It's a very difficult conversation to have with people um, because it is kind of seen as this scary monster that you, you, know, you don't really understand and... Because, unfortunately, even though there hasn't been very many major accidents, the major accidents that have happened have had a huge fallout. But, I mean, for example, the Three Mile Island accident that occurred in the US, that was really one of the first... I mean, that was where Human Factors was born out of Three Mile Island because it was all to do with poor control room design and so on. But nobody actually died in the accident, and yet mm-hmm. it's one of the most kind of quoted Nuclear events. Um, What's in the, the world. film that's based on it? That was the China Syndrome. Okay. Yeah. So that was unfortunate timing that <laughs> the film came out around the same time as the accident occurred. But it's it's a very difficult conversation to have with people, and all I can do is just say, well, you know, my experiences of when you go to the plant, and every plant that I've been to, I mean, they're spotlessly clean. Mm-hmm. They're incredibly well maintained. Even the older plants, it's very impressive when you go there versus when you go to. A fossil fuel plant for example but it's for me it's more that the people who work there is so professional and so knowledgeable it's really really impressive like really impressive how much knowledge they actually have and how professional they are and that that doesn't degrade over time so when I was in the UK I would work a lot with the size will be power plant which is in Suffolk mm-hmm. um, and I would work with the fuel route team and I observe them working over a five-year period and never once did their safety culture or their three-way communications degrade it was always maintained at a very very high standard and even uh, when you see so we see a lot of operators in these accident scenarios that we run in our simulator where we're throwing some really really complex scenarios at them you know like maybe there's a fire someplace on the plant and then something breaks and they have to try and and shut down the reactor and, you know, maintain radiation and so on. And I'm always surprised at, you know, we sort of predict that maybe it will take them 20 minutes to detect this steam leak. Mm -hmm. And they'll spot it in five minutes. They'll think, like, there's something going on over here. I'm not sure what it is yet, but I'm going to keep an eye on it. And they'll always detect it. Well, most of them will detect it very, very quickly. But then you would also think that, um, or at least I also always thought that in a situation when the reactor trips that in the control room it would be crazy like all hell will break loose there will be alarms and everything and it's the exact opposite it goes really quiet and everybody knows exactly what they have to do because they train on this so often that they're just in there you know pressing buttons and turning dials and all this and it's really really efficient and really fast they know what they're doing they give you an awful lot of confidence that they can figure this out and when you see you know the level of process knowledge that they have and just the understanding that they have of how the plant works and how their plant works, it's really, really impressive. And so I try to use that experience as example when I talk to people and just say, you know, if you saw these guys in action, you wouldn't doubt for a second that this is a safe plant and this yeah. is a, a good plant. But also it's the amount of money that goes into research. I mean we we have Oh, I can't remember the exact number of member countries. I think it's about 26 countries that fund research in the Halden nuclear project. And the fact that they're investing all of this money to... They're continuously trying to improve their operations and continuously trying to make them more efficient but also safer. And the key word really is safety. That's what is always driven home to us. Can we make this safer? And then afterwards, can we make it more efficient? Can we make it more effective? but safety is always number one in their mind. Mm -hmm. Um, Safety culture is a huge um, part of nuclear operations and a lot of other industries will look to nuclear as the kind of shining example Mm -hmm. of that's how they do it, so how can we translate that to petroleum or even to space operations and so on. They look at nuclear first and foremost. Yeah,
0: I think we don't give people enough credit (laughs) under these circumstances because... We've just released our our podcast with uh, Laurie Friedel, who she is looking at implicit bias in the police force. Mm. So this idea that we respond to things without even... I mean, obviously, none of us will say we're racist. And yet, once you're confronted with a situation, you uh, work on the basis of your um, exposure to certain cultures and what you think. And on the basis of training, the police can kind of slow it down and they can reduce these biases and she actually has proof for these things so there's no reason why it shouldn't apply in other situations as well
1: absolutely and that's so that's kind of what we try to do with human factors is to we look at okay what are all of the sort of external uh, conditions out there that will affect how an operator performs so the quality of the procedures the quality of the interface how much training they've received and so on but then there's just that innate uh, sort of tacit knowledge that the operators have that it's it's difficult to account for in a quantitative way, which mm-hmm. is a lot of what we try to do. But qualitatively, we can describe that you know these guys they just know what they're doing. They're yep. able to put two and two together, and it's not always easy to figure out what it is. But it, I think it just comes back to their knowledge, their um, experience of working together, and just the fact that you know, you hire bright people to Mm -hmm. work in a nuclear power plant. You know, you you make sure that you've got the people who just have the right stuff Mm. to be able to both cope with the pressure of that, but then also be able to just, okay, sort it out. What do we know? What can we do about this? When have we come up against something like this before? And how are we going to deal with it going forward yeah and you know I think we don't give enough credit for the fact that most nuclear operators will always err on the side of caution Mm -hmm. as well so they're not the Homer Simpson types yeah yeah (laughs) close your eyes and press a button they are actually applying logic and reasoning and understanding they won't take any action any unproceduralized action without actually having first discussed it Mm -hmm. and make sure everybody's in agreement and People don't see that side of it. Of course. uh, It's a bit frustrating sometimes.
0: So I'm wondering how you might be able to change people's perceptions of the things that go wrong in uh, nuclear power stations when they do go wrong. Because I suspect that most people have this image in their head, you know, that scene at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark with people's faces melting. I'd imagine that's what they think occurs when yeah. something goes wrong in a nuclear power station so what actually does go wrong when things do things go wrong
1: Oof. well I mean luckily I have never been at a plant where things have gone wrong but no I mean I've I've been at the plant where you know obviously you're wearing a lot of radiation monitors mm-hmm. and things like that when you're going into certain parts of the plant I've been at plants where uh, suddenly my monitor beeps mm-hmm. and I've received a radiation dose and you sort of do, when you get back to the locker room, you do sort of check yourself to see, am I all here? But, I mean, the reality is that the radiation dose that you're getting is so much less than, like, I've got more radiation flying to the US on this trip yep. than I will have done, you know, working beside the reactor for the last three years, probably. Um, they're very overly cautious in terms of um, the minimum dose that you're allowed to get. So it's all recorded every year. And they say, um, I don't know what it is in Norway actually, but in the UK it was basically, I think you were allowed to get 10 millisieverts per year Mm -hmm. and then you would not be allowed to go back on the plant again. And that was actually half of the recommended dose that's set out by the, the worldwide sort of nuclear operators. I mean, when things do happen, when you do get a radioactive dose, obviously depending on how much it is, um, it will affect you in different ways it depends, I've heard stories in the UK of from years and years ago of people who have been maybe painting uh, some equipment in a radioactive area and then they put the paintbrush in their pocket and they forget about Oops. it and they end up with horrific radiation burns the more sort of long term radiation you, you know perhaps you're more likely to get some kind of a cancer like a thyroid cancer or something like that um, and then you've got the Chernobyl type where people were literally dying within days, hours, or days of exposure um, from it just cancer raging throughout their body. So it's pretty horrific. I think that uh, when you start working in the industry first and you start learning about this, it's really terrifying. And you mm-hmm. think, I never want to go to a nuclear power plant. But we get so much training. Um, a lot of it is in terms of just understanding what radiation is and understanding how it affects you and how you can protect yourself from it. Yep. use a, a basic thing of time, shielding and distance. So the first thing that you do is you limit the time of exposure. So you limit how long you're actually in a particular a radioactive area. You use shielding, um, so you use lead shielding um, to protect yourself from the radiation. And then you also use distance in that if I know that there's a radioactive hotspot spot at the other side of the room I stay well away from it. Mm-hmm. So I'm, by the time you know the, the waves sort of reach me they've lost all energy and so they don't penetrate the protective clothing that I'm wearing. Yep. And so you, you employ these principles to keep yourself safe. You you know, you use your knowledge. Before you go out onto the plant, we would always have to do a pre job brief to discuss where are we gonna go, is there any radioactive areas in there and then um, if we need to go into one of those areas to see the piece of plant then how long do we need to be there, what are we going to do, how are we going to actually uh, approach it and so on. One of the projects that's being done at Halden is a 3D visualisation of radioactive areas and they're doing this at the moment to help with decommissioning plants. where They build 3D models and then actually visualise where the radiation is in that particular room or with that particular item of plant. The intention is that they can use this to train the operators or train the the workers that are going in because the workers are not necessarily going to be nuclear workers, they might just be construction workers. Train them on how to go in, do what they need to do and get out in the quickest, most efficient way to limit their exposure and also just training them about the presence of radiation and what that means and how you have to conduct yourself. So there's a lot of of work that goes into it. I mean, it's it's just second nature to me now. Just the same way as like holding the handrail when you go down the stairs. You yep. I don't even think about it now. It's just automatic. It's always there in the back of your mind. Hmm. Um. But it is scary when you get that beep on your monitor and you just think, Oof! How much did I get?
0: I think part <laughs> of the problem is that this is a very nebulous concept to yeah. most people, and they they don't really understand what's damaging the kind of damage it can do and people um, forget the the major source of radiation we're experiencing right now in Florida it's in the glorious sunshine yes, yes. exactly
1: <laughs> that's exactly it i mean it's i know most people now will have seen these charts online where they sort of show you the radiation from various different things just natural background radiation mm-hmm. and the radiation that you would actually get from a nuclear power plant is so minimal by comparison and the cancer rates from you know that you would get from living next to or working at a power plant i mean obviously if you're a smoker yes you're so much more likely to to die of cancer than you know if, if you were working at a power plant it is a difficult concept but you know the nuclear power plants they're so tightly regulated they're built on containing this radiation yep keeping it contained, keeping it controlled, keeping it monitored. If there's any kind of a release, it has to be reported straight away. So if you just release steam to the atmosphere, you have to actually monitor that and you have to report it. Um, There are various bodies worldwide. They very, very strictly monitor um, movement of radioactive fuel to the point that you actually have cameras on your spent fuel pool. So if you move any fuel anywhere, it's being recorded by your atom and they can come in and audit. And it's so strictly, like, tightly controlled and so regulated that um, it's really, really maintained at a very, very safe level. Mm -hmm. Um, Even when I was working at Sizewell B, um, you have a security perimeter and, you know, you, you do all sorts of calculations to see if we had a release, you know, how would it actually affect the um security perimeter of the um the local plant and you know how can we make sure that the local population is maintained like safe Mm -hmm. from this if they do have to vent any steam to the atmosphere for example they will only do it when the wind is blowing away from the town Uh i mean even to that level like it's that level of thinking that goes into it so it's yeah it's not something that i worry about anymore i used to worry about it um, now I just I don't I just I see for myself when I go to the plant yeah like this is I'm like I said I'm going to get more radiation just sitting on an airplane mm-hmm. than I'm going to get from these guys so yeah
0: mm-hmm. so I don't know if you've heard this recent story um on new technologies trying to extract more energy from spent fuel rods yeah what do you think
1: about that Yeah, I mean, I I think it's exciting research because most of the um, spent fuel rods will still actually have quite a bit of activity or what they call fizz left in them. Fizz. They still have a lot of fizz in them. Um, But the the way that the reactors are, um, or at least the commercial reactors, the way that they operate now, they just can't. It's not efficient for them to Mm -hmm. try to use up the fuel. Um, to that degree but when you look at um, for example the nuclear submarines I mean they have one set of fuel in that reactor core and that lasts for about 30 years Wow so they've managed to get the technology to work I'm Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure why I'm not very clued in on it but I just think that um, it's definitely something that should be researched because it also helps to solve the the problem one of the main problems with nuclear industry is what do we do with the fuel after we take it out of the reactor Mm -hmm there is a reprocessing plant in the uk but that only reprocesses certain types of fuel right and so the type of fuel that's coming from um the pressurized water reactors which are the, the sort of newer types of reactors that are out there it, they can't reprocess that so then what do you do with that fuel yeah um, i really think that uh it's a good idea to look into this and particularly with you know oil running out and and all that you just think well if we have a source of fuel there let's do our best to actually use it. Absolutely. Mm.
0: I have a question about Mm -hmm. internationally. What's the difference across, for instance, a reactor in Japan and a reactor in Mexico? Uh,
1: I can only comment on the difference between U.S. and U.K. There's kind of a preconception uh, that the way that operators work in Europe is very different to the way that operators work in the U.S., In the U.S., a lot of nuclear operators will be ex-navy or ex-military, basically. Um, And so they have a different style of operating because of that sort of military background. Um, And we did see at Halden, there was this kind of perception that, you know, well, U.S. operators will follow procedures to the letter and they will do exactly what it says in the procedures, whereas the European operators are a bit more loosey-goosey a bit more you know sort of <laughs> well we'll just you know well that's procedures telling me to do this but i don't know if that's the right thing to do <laughs> you know but and that's what made it very interesting when we get um crews from the u.s into halden and we get crews from for example sweden or finland and we see actually there's not a lot of difference in how they operate they both follow the procedures exactly as they should do they both, um, you know, the operating crew will take a decision together. It's not, you know, one individual that's making all the decisions and, and driving the process. Um, the the way that they communicate, the way that they work as a team, it's actually very, very similar. And so it was really interesting. There was a, a big benchmarking study done a few years ago where this was revealed. And it was quite interesting for a lot of people who just thought, you know, looked at the results and thought, oh, so we're not so different after all and it's great for us because it means that the research that we do we can kind of say that it's, it's broadly applicable then to a lot of different countries that even with these differences in culture and differences in reactor designs and so on the way that people operate is still the same there's still people at the end of the day and they still react in the same way to these different scenarios so it's pretty cool
0: Yeah, I think what you were saying earlier about people being prepared to sacrifice and this happening across so many different cultures, yeah like it already points in that direction. Yeah, I know David's loathe to get in front of the microphone, so I'll ask his questions for him. (laughs) Uh, He said, so why Norway? So much petrol there that it doesn't seem to be the first country to think of when it comes to nuclear energy.
1: Yeah, I'm not really sure why the reactor was set up in Norway actually it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense although I mean when the reactor was set up this was before they had discovered their massive oil fields so they built the reactor in 54 and they didn't discover the oil until the 70s okay and I think it was more just that there was a group of interested scientists why they put it in Halden I have no idea Mm -hmm. it really doesn't make sense because it was just this kind of small sleepy industrial town population now is about 3,000 so I imagine it was less in the 50s Um, but it may just be that it was just kind of the right place at the right time but it's really you know they don't have a long nuclear history in Norway Um, even in Sweden which is our closest neighbor there's only a small handful of plants there Mm -hmm. so you would imagine that something like this would make a lot more sense in France or in the UK for example But in France, they do have quite a a number of research reactors. And we have one that is a direct rival of ours. I see. Uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) We've been there longer.
0: (laughs) Um, And as a follow-up to that, do other energy industries have the same rigorous process to assess risk? And I was wondering this because, Mm. obviously, if you had an explosion at a gas power plant, people would get over it and just say, oh, well, oops, yeah. Uh, whereas with a nuclear power station, it stays in people's minds forevermore. Yeah,
1: yeah absolutely. And, I mean, it, it is a fact that most other um, high hazard or uh, process industries are not as tightly regulated. And therefore, they're not, you know, people will only kind of do as much as they have to do in most of the other industries. So I've done a lot of work in petroleum um, and a little bit in the um, process industry in the UK, some of these guys, you know, they they don't even have procedures to tell them what to do in the event of an accident. They really do rely on people's knowledge and experience, um, and it can be a little bit a little bit worrying for me when I see how strictly it's controlled in the nuclear reg- um, nuclear industry, but then how. Unlikely we are to have an accident in the nuclear industry, whereas you know you have things like Deepwater Horizon accident, mm-hmm. which is There's, very local. And yes, there was the the Bunsfield explosion in mm-hmm. the UK a couple of years ago. Um, you know, and that's. But I think the difference is, as you said, like that's more likely to have a large immediate effect on people, but then it's kind of gone. Except, you know, with Deepwater Horizon, of course, you've got the ongoing effects of the oil spill and mm-hmm. that. But with a nuclear accident, I mean, we're still dealing with the effects of Chernobyl, you know, more than 20, 30 years later, um, in that, you know, the, the land around there is still uninhabitable by people, and it's, yeah, still people dealing with that. One thing I will say, again, with the other process industries, you do, not to the same extent that I've noticed in nuclear, but you just do, do still come up against people who are extremely professional in their jobs you know they're very knowledgeable i was working on a case recently which was looking at a floating drill rig out in the barents sea um and even though these guys didn't have procedures to tell them what to do in the event of a particular scenario their level of process knowledge and understanding was astounding and i you know we we quizzed them to see like do you get trained on this and they said no and we said well how do you know what to do and they said well you know, for days we're sitting on this rig and nothing is happening. So we discuss these kinds of things mm-hmm. and we just talk about it amongst ourselves. You know, if somebody is a little bit unsure about how this might work, we'll talk through it. We will we have a little computer there that we can kind of simulate what it might look like and what, what alarms we would expect to see in one. And we do this. We just drill it ourselves. And, you know, we said, well, is, is that based on a directive from your manager or anything like that? And they said, no, it's just purely purely out of boredom that's what we do you know but I just thought well that's fantastic I mean instead of sitting there on Facebook they're actually trying to improve their own way of working and that really points to the professionalism of those people Yep. having said that I've also met a lot of people who when you say to them you know what would happen if you had a gas leak from here and they just kind of throw their hands up and say we don't really know it hasn't really (laughs) happened One thing in the nuclear industry that they're very, very strong on is sharing what they call operating experience or Mm -hmm. OPEX. Um, Because you have these different worldwide bodies that you have to report even very, very low-level events. They're not even accidents, but just, you know, we had uh, a pump broke, for example. You have to report these and you have to report what happened and what you did to fix it. Mm -hmm. Um, And this information is shared amongst the whole worldwide nuclear industry. So anybody else can, can go onto this database and say, okay, I've got this kind of a pump. Mm-hmm. We're having these kinds of problems with it. I want to look on the database and see others who've had those problems, what happened, how do they fix it? And they don't do that in, for example, the petroleum industry or the, the petrochemical industry. So even though there's this huge body of knowledge out there amongst the individual organizations, yep. they're not sharing that. And so they're not learning from experience and that seems like such a shame um, mm-hmm. I know in Norway in the petroleum industry you know there are databases out there but you just you can't get access to them if you don't work for that company and I you see. just think why I mean it's 2016 we should be sharing that information but there's so much I suppose um, fear amongst the companies that it would be used in the wrong context and it might be used to shut them down maybe mm-hmm. so they just don't want to share it I see mm.
0: Arturo would like to know what he has to do to get your job do you make me not literally offer? your job I,
1: think. <laughs> I was going to say if you make me an offer I'll sell you my pass <laughs> <laughs> you can get in.
0: thank you so much for your time Claire on this very, very short trip to Tampa we appreciate you um, making the effort especially since I believe you enjoyed the uh, tropical heatwave festival yes. uh, <laughs> quite a lot yesterday um, thanks again you're very welcome Thank <laughs> you.
1: I started in my career as a human factors uh, analyst. I was working in a very male-dominated office and that I was the only uh, female in the office. And I sort of really felt like I had to prove myself, um, to prove that you know I was just as good as, as them, if not more so. And um, my PhD was based on uh, looking at maritime accidents that had occurred. Um, And I got assigned to work on a project that was assessing um, cognitive workload for uh, people working on the bridge of these uh, long-distance ferries and things like that. So we would look at the captain of the ship, the first mate and all the other people who would normally be on the bridge. And uh, we came up with the bright idea that the best way for me to do this would be to observe people on a ferry trip. And they picked a ferry that was going from Southampton, in the south of England, to the islands of Jersey and Guernsey, and then it would go to France, Mm -hmm. Saint Malin in France, and then it would go back in one day. Um, The ferry was leaving at four in the morning from Southampton, and I lived in Manchester, so I had to travel down the day before. It took me the whole day to get there, because it was a Sunday, and I was traveling by train. So by the time I got to the hotel in Southampton, I already felt a little bit ill just from traveling all day. Uh, And then I had to get up at 3 a.m. to go and get this ferry at 4 o'clock. But I was thinking, it's okay because I love boats. Mm -hmm. I really love boats. And how exciting is it going to be to be on the bridge of a ferry on the way to France? Uh, I went and I met the captain and I met the first mate and they said it's you know it's a good day to sail it's going to be really calm so it's the like perfect conditions they showed me around the bridge they pointed out all the different equipment and so on and then they said okay you're ready to go let's go and we set sail and about half an hour into the journey I started feeling really queasy I was supposed to be interviewing the master and or the captain and the first mate and I couldn't get the words out because I was afraid that I was going to vomit and what was worse was that it was the calmest sea that they had had in months and so I ended up with the first mate like essentially not quite holding my hair back but sort of like rubbing my back and feeding me seasick pills all the time I'm trying to be a professional in my new career as a human factors expert by the time we got to Jersey I couldn't take it anymore and I said I have to get off the ship I can't continue on And I could see them kind of looking at me and thinking, but you haven't even asked us any questions. And I said, just get me off this ship. (laughs) And so I spent the day um, in the island of uh, Jersey, just sitting on the edge of the pier, kind of soaking up the sun and drinking tea and trying to make my stomach less queasy and waiting for the boat to come back and pick me up. And when I came back... um, the uh, first mate greeted me with a bouquet of seasickness bags <laughs> and tablets and I just thought oh my god okay yes I'm a professional human factors analyst. <laughs> <laughs> so I went back with no data no observations nothing to show for my time just a very very embarrassed experience.
0: been listening to a two scientists podcast now if you'd like to keep up with our new releases you can follow us on twitter at two s c i s facebook or google plus using the handle two scientists or for the more old school among you you can check out our website at two scientists.org thanks for tuning in con